Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. It's a Muggle Mail episode today. We've got some emails. We've got some voicemails. We've got a lot of great feedback on our recent discussions coming up in today's episode. But first, we wanted to talk about a couple of books. Last week, we mentioned that Order of the Phoenix Illustrated Edition, illustrated by Jim Kay, is out now. Eric's modeling it off. Eric, it's heavy, right? This is a murder weapon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It really is. And I'm, I'm actually looking for a disclaimer on the back that says, do not use this to blunt force somebody. But it's not there. Honestly, I am starting to wonder, like, how do you read these things? You have to put it on your lap. You can't travel with it. It's kind of effort to hold these things. I love them. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful, but they're big and heavy. The only solace is this is clearly going to be the biggest and the heaviest because Order of the Phoenix had the most pages. Yeah. Yeah, it was the longest. It was the longest Harry Potter book. So nowhere to go but down and wait and lethality. But just a little bit. Not too much, though. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Well, you raise a good point, though, Andrew, because I like... You, I've been using this illustrated edition as we read through chapter by chapter of Sorcerer's Stone. By the time we get to Order of the Phoenix, I don't know how I'm going to be able to use this. You're going to be stronger from having to <laughs> having lifted all the other books so many times. Yep. It's, it's, You're you going to build up your tolerance. Get your reps in. <laughs> well, this is a Muggle Mail episode, and it felt appropriate to start this review with an email. Micah, do you want to read this? Sure. Uh, this email comes from Jennifer, and she says, hey, y'all. I was a bit worried about how many illustrations we were going to get for book five, since it is the biggest of the series. Plus, there's not as many action-packed scenes as Goblet of Fire. However, I was pleasantly surprised and blown away once again by how much hard work Jim Kay and Neil Packer put into this book. From Carcass's head on page 277 to Snape and Sirius, uh, pages 340 to 341, to Voldemort and Dumbledore's duel, pages 528 to 29, I was absolutely amazed by all the stunning artwork in book five. Jim Kay captured Tonks on page 38 and Kingsley page 42 perfectly, along with Neville and Luna on the train on page 134. Uh, but my favorite pages have to be with Harry and the Thestral, pages 142 to 143, and the truly heartbreaking scene of Harry and Dumbledore in his office on page 538. Yeah, this is an amazing drawing we should talk more about. Uh, on the Thestral's harness, you see part of the Latin phrase, finis vitae sed non amoris. Hopefully I did that justice. Nice job, Micah. As a two-year Latin student, you did great. Okay. I should have <laughs> gone to you, Eric. I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't have done it that well. Jennifer looked it up, and in English, it reads, the end of life, but not of love. You can see this phrase on a piece of piece of parchment in Dumbledore's office as well. The reason Harry can see Thestrals is because of Cedric's death, and at the end of the book, we see him mourning the loss of Sirius. This hits on such a deeper level, which makes both illustrations so much more poignant. I wasn't expecting to have such an emotional reaction while looking through this book, but I think that it is a testament to the heart and talent that Jim Kay has given us fans over the years. Love to hear your thoughts. Thank you for all you do to keep this a fun and engaging podcast. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And thank you for that detailed review. Yeah, there's so much to love in this book. I've had a blast paging through it. You know what I found interesting right at the start, actually, in the dedication page, Jim Kay, he wrote in his dedication to Josephine, Dave, and all those who work so hard for the NHS, the NHS being the National Health Service of the UK, which I thought was a really nice nod to the fact that we just went through COVID. I assume that's why he gave a shout out to the NHS. Yeah, I think that's a safe assumption. Well, when you said that, I was thinking too, noting that he did call out that he's been going through some mental health challenges of his own. Maybe that had something to do with his dedication too. That thought did cross my mind as well. But oh my gosh, I mean, you know, we've said it before. These books are one of the best parts of fandom right now. Just to run through a couple of things that really stood out to me, the Dementor attack on page 16. And they kind of have fun with some of these pages when Harry's going through a moment. Like on this page, there's less text on the page than you would expect, but a lot of darkness on the page to highlight the Dementor attack. And a page or two later, we get Fig coming to help. It was really great seeing Fig illustrated. And I think Fig is drawn as a woman of color. 
She is. Yes. Yeah, it's very so adding adding to diversity, adding to I, I just love the way that they're playing with some of these illustrations and in a really cool way to bring these books more color. Just to run through uh, some of the illustrations that really stood out to me, uh, Jennifer mentioned the younger Tonks. That was nice to see. Also, Sirius, who looks younger than he does in the movies, so that was kind of a pleasant surprise. Yeah, Harry's looking finally at him too, which just breaks your heart if you know what's going to be happening later. Uh, there's more nods to Newt in the creature illustrations. There's a black family tree. There's a map of the Ministry of Magic, which I don't th- don't think we've ever gotten before. Snape's worst memory. We see Lily protecting Snape as an invincible Harry watches. That's on page 417. Sirius heading into the veil. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That one hurt. Oh. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So those those were some of my favorites. Yeah. D- Dumbledore and Voldemort battling. You get to see that next level magic we talked about. Uh, going to London on the Thestrals, it's this wonderful overhead shot. Um, there's this huge two page for Grop versus the Centaurs on page 488, uh, which is great. Actually, Grop, Grop is, I think, really well done. He's just an unwieldy guy. There's another one of him on 446. I think, as always, there are ones I want to see that aren't in here. Uh, you know, I mentioned like Ginny in book two, that kind of a thing. The only one I could really think of is I was hoping to see Professor Lockhart when they go back to St. Mungo's, oh. maybe an illustration of seeing what yeah. just just as a result of having done his madness two illustrated. Yeah. Seeing how how far he has fallen and that did not occur. But the amount of artwork and even just the decorations for the page alongside the text in this book is a tremendous feat. There's it's really no wonder they had to bring on a second artist. And um, I'm really happy with their different sort of like complementary styles. Meg and I paged through this uh, last night and it's really uh, clever and interesting how they work together. And I think it's really a gargantuan feat that has now been completed. Yeah, I was going to say I'm a big fan always been a big fan of the portraits that we see in these books so like portrait of luna um although it was it was unsettling uh the portrait of umbridge i saw <laughs> yeah. that and i was like oh my god this is exactly as she is described <laughs> in the book and you know imelda staunton is amazing and she portrayed umbridge beautifully but she is just quite a deal more pleasant than the actual description <laughs> of the character. Right. Um, so that was cool. And to Eric's point, I think they do such a good job of immersing you in the mood of the moment. Um, thinking about the Snape's worst memory chapter and how the first part of that is all black pages. Um, I need to look a little closer at the surrounding area, but it's all very brightly colored. Did y'all notice that? I noticed the bright red blood on the chapters where Harry's in detention. Yeah. yeah. That it just splattered across several pages as the only art on that page. It's amazing. It's yeah. it's it's and terrifying mm-hmm. at the same time. I like how you brought up Luna because she's one of the characters that we see multiple times. We get yeah. that portrait of her that you mentioned at the very end of the book, but then she's also in that shot with Neville. So it's it's kind of interesting that they chose to spend so much time with her, but this is kind of her her big book when she kind of comes on scene. I really loved more than anything. And and I will say, I loved the the scene in Dumbledore's office at, at the very end of the book, but Peeves uh, saluting the Weasley twins yeah. uh, as they were exiting oh, yeah. Hogwarts was just so cool because unfortunately Peeves is a character we never got to see in the movies, was never brought to life. Um, we know he was cast in Sorcerer's Stone, but um you know, just they ended up cutting them from the film. So I just love being able to see those moments that don't necessarily end up making it um, on screen. And again, Laura, I agree. Like Jim K's ability to draw characters in those portraits are just so cool. I'm thinking back to Mundungus when he's first introduced, he's kind of sitting at the table and there's like this pipe that he's smoking and there's this green mist wafting into the air and he just looks like he's a guy who's been out um you know on the streets hustling so um and then jennifer mentioned tonks kingsley like they're just so well done so this is really just a great book to go through there's lots of little easter eggs i mean i think andrew you called out the mention of newt um we see like a measurement of the the 
pixies. I think they were in uh, Grimmauld Place. And it, the little thing just says Newt Scamander on it. Um, there's also an informational page on giants. Well, yeah, they were like houses as hats and yeah. different things as hats. <laughs> yeah. A giant church bell as hats. It's not, you know, in the book, but it colors the world. It really does. And it makes you wonder, I mean, is this something that was consulted on to find out, like, is this canon or was this just a creative liberty that Jim Kay was able to take? Yeah, it's kind of like the the things that are written in the margins of the old comic relief books is like, yeah. can we take that as canon? <laughs> but I'm just looking at this one. Uh, it's page 279 of Hagrid with the stake, uh, you know, nursing. Oh, his yeah, eye. that was a good one. Like. And amazing. And again, the background detail, you really just feel like you're looking up at this giant. There's a lot of good uh, Hagrid depictions in this. I'm also thinking about the one of him. I think it's page 465. He's busting out of his hut. He's fighting off of, um, I guess, the ministry officials that show up to try and attack him. Yeah. And then also he's carrying meat on his back, like as he leads students into the forest to teach them about Thestrals. So there's just a lot of really fun depictions of of Hagrid. Micah, you mentioned we should talk about that one of Harry and Dumbledore towards the end looking defeated. It was a really stunning illustration. Like Jennifer said in her email, Dumbledore looks almost frail. And Harry looks kind of frail. And also, they're just both very sad sitting in Dumbledore's office. That was definitely a very striking illustration. I would love to see some of these printed out in as art someday. I have to think they'll release these as art prints one day because it's almost a shame that these are, dare I say, hidden in these books. I would love to have some of this art hanging up. And another thing I've really loved about this illustrated series is watching the characters grow up, particularly the children, watching them age over time. And I also thought one nice touch, like we've mentioned, the assistant illustrator, Neil Packer, he joined uh, Jim Kay for the first time. On all of his illustrations, you'll find his initials in the corner of the illustration. And I really appreciate that because otherwise, you look at some of these illustrations and most of Neil's are smaller, you're like, well, is this Jim's or Neil's? So it's nice, kind of like a peace of mind thing that you know who did what. So if you see an NP next to an illustration, it was Neil's. And if you don't see anything next to it, it was Jim Kay's. I thought that was really great. So you're not left wondering who did what. Neil is also great at these really intricate. I'm thinking there's one that's the entire Ministry of Magic Underground. And it's like a shot by shot, floor by floor. Yeah. Um, what's on each ground. Like they're very almost like blueprints. It's a really unique sort of very detailed, minuscule detail art style. That's very different than sort of the lush portraiture, uh, like watercolor ask of Jim Kay. So it really works well together. And to that point, I think I speculated a week or two ago, I wonder if Neil is going to be the one taking over. His style is noticeably different than Jim Kate. So I wonder if they want to go with Neil or if they want to do some use somebody who's closer to Jim K. I would hope it's somebody who's going to be closer to Jim K just for the consistency's sake. Yeah, there's no reason they can't do both again, uh, as they yeah. did in this book. Maybe they'll have uh, you know an artistic duo. Um, to do because there's only two books left at this point. You got to keep going. Mina Lima is taking over for the final two books. <laughs> I need to complete. I need to complete. No, they have their own illustrated books. That I know, they're doing I know. With the graphics and the. But yeah, the uh, I need to complete my set. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. No, they're gonna finish this, but it'll be interesting to see who they select for the final two books. But I, I, I do agree, Eric. That's a good point. Even if they don't use Neil to lead the illustrations in the next two books, they should still have him just to help bridge the gap between five and six. Plus, he's got good experience going through fire on this one. So that's the Order of the Phoenix Illustrated Edition. Check it out. Great holiday gift if you want to put something on your wish list. Also, we didn't mention this book last week, but we should have. We, we mentioned last week that there's a lot of books for Harry Potter fans coming out that uh you know around the holiday season and another one that came out is this book called the magic of mina lima mina lima are the graphic designers behind virtually everything you see in the harry potter and fantastic beast movies and this book gives you a complete look at all of their wizarding world work to date 
showing how they work together to design art for the Potter movies, the Fantastic Beast movies, the theme parks, the conferences, the various Potter spinoff projects. And every I, I have this book, every page is packed with artwork. And each page is dedicated to different elements like the wanted posters that we first saw in Prisoner of Azkaban or Credence Barebones documentation. There's so much of that. Weasley Wizard Wheezes, educational decrees from the fifth movie, the Black Family Tapestry, the Marauder's Map, and so much more. Lots of pullout items to explore, too, which is fun to see. And you also learn about how they met one another and how they got the gig working for the Wizarding World. So if you love their artwork, and who doesn't, definitely check out The Magic of Mina Lima as well. Pound for pound, I mean, you get your money's worth with this book, because like I said, the pages are packed with details. You can spend so much time looking at each page. I was going to ask, how heavy is it, pound for pound? <laughs> <laughs> Not as big as Order of the Phoenix. I'd probably okay. put it at Prisoner of Azkaban Illustrated Edition. I see, okay. All right. Well, before we get to Muggle Mail, little heads up for Apple Podcast users. For just $2.99 a month, you can now receive ad-free MuggleCast and early access to each new episode of the show right within the Apple Podcast app. By subscribing to the show, you're supporting us just like our patrons do. Of course, you can pledge to our Patreon to receive many more benefits. But if you'd prefer to support us through the Apple Podcast app, we'll hook you up with no more advertising and you'll get each episode of MuggleCast on Mondays instead of Tuesdays. Just tap into the show and you'll see that subscribe button. Thanks for your support, no matter how you support us. And now let's get to some Muggle Mail and enough of us talking. Let's hear from our listeners. And we're going to start with a voicemail from David on Magic's Origin. Hi, MuggleCast. My name is David from British Columbia, and this is a crackpot theory following up to your discussion from episode 576 about where magic comes from. I think that magic comes from the metabolism of the wizard. Um, you look at the most powerful wizards like Voldemort and Dumbledore, and they're both described as being incredibly thin. Um, you've got characters like Slughorn who don't do as much classical magic because they just do potions, and they're described as more overweight. Um, you also have these kids having these massive feasts on a daily basis, and none of them are really described as being overweight. Uh, the only overweight, overweight characters are characters like Neville, Crab, and Goyle, who are all known for not being very good at magic. Um, now, yes, this does have some problematic implications for body image, but it does seem that the more magic you're using, the uh, more energy it's taking from your body, so the more food you have to eat. And so, you know, I mean, the the kids don't take gym class or anything, so it only makes sense that magic comes from the food that they eat. That's my theory. Uh, thanks for listening. I, I love this. Love this. It's so <laughs> interesting. When I was pulling voicemails, I just was waiting for Laura to respond to this because this is in direct, you know, response to the episode that we did with Mark. Yeah, no, I love it, especially the point about just how much the kids are eating and how much food is prepared at Hogwarts. I know we were wondering about food waste because it seems like they kind of prepare food in excess, but maybe not. Um, I agree with David that there there are some problematic um, things around body image and the way that... Um, you know, people of various body sizes are represented in the books. But I think that you can still pull out this nugget of truth that if you're trying to find a way to explain the source of magic, the energy has to come from somewhere. Um, just like when you're working out, for example, when you're working out consistently, you tend to eat more because you need more fuel to power those workouts. I think it's probably a similar thing with magic. I also had a, a similar thought about Quidditch because I was like, I, I was actually thinking about this in the shower this morning before the show, but I was like, how do these kids like they're athletes and yeah, they go to Quidditch practice, but you never see them working out. <laughs> And I'm like, you would think that they would have to do something to at least maintain their cardiovascular expenditure that they're making stamina. every yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. to maintain their stamina. And I was like, all we ever see is them like actually playing Quidditch. So it is a great, a great point. I love this theory. And also David has a great podcasting voice. He does. <laughs> I just want to point that out. David, start a podcast. 
<laughs> but yeah, but just <laughs> a- extending the David's theory, if it's going to take energy to cast spells, then it's going to take a lot of energy and burn a lot of calories to be flying a broom because a broom is magic. Yeah. It's just so funny to think that Harry and all of the kids in at Hogwarts are just covertly sort of next to the books, like just eating insane amounts of food, just absolutely crazy eating all the time because they need to do their spell work. Yeah. yeah. And it makes me wonder about Hermione and Goblet of Fire when she was refusing to eat. If this theory holds true, I wonder if this impacted her output. She was intermittent fasting. <laughs> <laughs> Only eating between six and ten. There is definitely yeah. a lot of food, but part of me wonders too, because we're seeing it through Harry's eyes and because he's been deprived for so long living with the Dursleys, if it's not actually that much food, it's just how Harry interprets it because, you know, he's not been fed growing up. Let's be real. That's Valid. fair too. I think especially at <laughs> At first, this next voicemail is a pretty fun one. Hi, MuggleCast. My name is Karen. I'm a listener from Canada. I've been listening to the podcast for about 10 years, but I've never called in before. Uh, When I heard this situation, I knew I had to get your take on it. My best friend recently went out on a first date with a gentleman who um, seemed nice enough. But when they got to talking about their interests, she mentioned that she likes the Harry Potter books. And he said he had only read the adult versions of the books because they had more sophisticated language and a darker tone and story than the children's versions. What? Now, this is obviously not true, um, but he was adamant in his opinion. And so I was wondering if you were in that scenario on a first date and someone had this strong opinion about something totally false about the Harry Potter series, how would you approach it? I would die on that hill. (laughs) Do you have the security nightmare sound effect? Starting to sound like a security nightmare. Security nightmare. I would die on the hill arguing that and then I would leave the date. Yeah, yeah. It, this guy's a liar. I wouldn't. I wouldn't yeah, go back. Actually, I was just gonna say it should have been the Dumbledore it should be the liar. liar. Yeah. Please, Harry, trust me. You liar. <laughs> <laughs> Do we add to the Dumbledore lie count? I would have stood up at the table and said, "You liar," and then stormed out of there. This is unfortunate. <laughs> and then asked him what book that's from, and if he can't answer, yeah. I bet this guy went out and bought the adult versions of the books that do have different cover art. Uh, remember, they made those because they didn't want adults to feel embarrassed to be reading Harry Potter in public. He probably bought that and assumed that the text was different. I wonder if he even read it. Did you even read it? <laughs> I know. I, I would wonder that, too. But maybe, you know, we hear often about how, oh, Harry Potter's for kids and people just assume it's kids language. So maybe if I'm being generous, he did pick up the adult cover editions and read it and was like, oh, this isn't for kids. This is for adults. He was just pleasantly surprised to learn that the the writing in these books, particularly in the later ones, is actually for adults, for people of all ages. You're being but that's very a generous. generous I, yeah. I think this guy's going through some stuff. He's got to work on himself. He's not ready to be out there dating. He's, he's a liar. Do he's not gotta, see He's got to understand again. the way the Harry Potter books work. Otherwise, how are you going to ever have a prosperous relationship with that guy? That's my question. I don't know. I would run. And for her, she she's a fan. So naturally, she's going to know that he's full of it. So why would he even try if, if in fact, he is lying? And Andrew, I think you made a potentially compelling case for him. But she would know right off the bat that. There's no difference between the books. So what is this guy trying to sell me? I wonder if like she started probing, asking, you know, oh, oh, well, what's your favorite book then? You know, what was what was the biggest difference that you enjoyed? Right. I, right. I think she said that uh, he was adamant that it was the case that the words had changed, in which case she probably told him like, oh, you know, the only thing different about those is the covers. Then he was like, no, 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 no. The writing is that in that case, like he's doubling down. It's like, Ugh. but on the other hand, you try to be polite because it's a first date. True. You don't want to. Yeah. Somebody can be a fan and a self-described fan without a purity test. Like we got to also get out of the habit of like really getting down to people and quizzing them on stuff. But it is a funny little terrifying tidbit of this guy thinking that the adult books contain different writing. I think it depends on how he delivered it too. You know, if he's coming across as trying to be like, oh, well, you know, I'm a tough guy and, uh, you know, I only read the adult (laughs) Harry Potter. I read only the adult Harry Potter books. (laughs) Yeah. Context is always king. 
But the fact that he apparently remained so adamant after being given information by somebody who knows what they're talking about as a red flag. Um, this has been uh, MuggleCast's new segment, Madam Puttyfoot's Relationship Advice <laughs> Corner. <laughs> uh, let's actually do that now. <laughs> yeah, I am begging listeners, share more Harry Potter-related stories from dates that you go on. If you get any good stuff like this or people like pretending that they're fans of Harry Potter, I would love to hear those stories. In terms of what I would actually do, I may just string him along and be like, oh, yeah, really? And like, I think maybe Mike or Eric was saying earlier, like, what's your favorite chapter? What What's your favorite uh, book in this adult series? And then I would just be quietly thinking to myself, oh, my God, I have the best story ever for MuggleCast. <laughs> I can't wait to tell this on the pod. Stay toxic, kids. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm actually watching our inbox and we have about 25, nope, 45 new emails about relationship advice, Harry Potter. So we've we've opened the floodgates. Yeah. We'll get to it this Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next voicemail. Hey, MuggleCast, this is Caitlin, and I have basically been listening to you guys since day one. We are all about the same age. We've all grown up together, and I was even an original member of the Pickle Pack, so that's how far back we go. Um, anyway, if you want to feel old, I have a 10-year-old son now, and um, the other day I was in the car listening to your 500th episode from last year, and he gets in the car and he was like, so are you guys all going to be like in your 50s when they release the 1000th episode of Mugfest? <laughs> so you guys are Mugfest to him. Anyhow, um, as I'm gearing up to watch season five of Cobra Kai on Netflix, I just keep thinking about how cool it would be if they basically took the same exact premise from Cobra Kai and applied that to the Harry Potter universe. So you had a whole story starting with the characters in the current timeline as adults, but you're telling it from Draco Malfoy's point of view and also having these sort of flashbacks where you can see how, you know, Harry really was a jerk in that situation. Like we were only getting the seven books through Harry's perspective, but now we can see things through the antagonist's perspective, but it turns it on its head into this like, taking him from an antagonist to this lovable anti-hero. And anyway, I just think that that would be such a great idea for Warner Brothers to do a TV series that's like, you know, the Draco Malfoy, Draco Kai. So anyway, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts um, if you guys are fans of Cobra Kai. And hey, thanks for sticking around all this time and being here for those of us who have stuck with you, it really means the whole world to be able to turn on a podcast and just feel like I am home again and like a kid again. So thank you guys. I love you all. Take care. Thanks, Caitlin. That was sweet. Caitlin's over here getting me emotional. While we're playing sound <laughs> effects, why don't we do the max that idea? This is a wonderful idea that Caitlin has presented. Max that here at Mugfest. <laughs> Mugfest. <laughs> Mugfest. I think we should change our name. Micah, you watch Cobra Kai, right? Or you have? Yeah, I, I love Cobra Kai. Uh, and I think the idea that Caitlin throws out there is a really, really good one. Um, one of the things that Cobra Kai just does such an amazing job of is the nostalgia factor. Um, you know, bringing back characters that were in the Karate Kid movie, probably going back. 30 plus years at this point. And also I think when I talk about nostalgia, right, these were movies that were put out in like the eighties. And so there's a lot of like really great references to the eighties and the nineties, um, especially with one of the lead characters, Johnny Lawrence, like he just doesn't seem to have evolved into current into present day. And so like, he's still trying to do things the way we would do things in like the eighties and the nineties. I'm not sure necessarily how we could tie that to Hogwarts. Um, but I, I think maybe the movies would need to be out for a little bit longer of a period of time first. And then we can like go back and revisit 
um, the story through Draco Malfoy's perspective and maybe even bring back some of the older cast, yeah. which would have been the younger cast at the time. Yeah. Well, does uh, does Tom Felton indicate in his diary or in his uh, autobiography <laughs> for those who've read it that he would be interested in uh, doing something like that? I have not read that part yet, but uh, it doesn't mean it's not in there. I'm only about halfway through the book. There you <laughs> You'll get that at the end in the epilogue. <laughs> 19 years later. Yeah. I will say I was really uh, shocked at just how big the whole Cobra Kai um, fan base is because I put out a tweet going back a couple months ago when I started watching and I was like, where has this show been? This is like in the top five shows I've ever watched. And it got a thousand likes, which is not not normal for my social media, um, you know, engagement. Wasn't it retweeted by one of the actors in the show? It must have been like somebody who works on the show or one of the actors. Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, thank you for that, Caitlin. We have one more voicemail today from Karina. Hi, y'all. This is Karina, a German Hufflepuff listener and a huge fan of the show. And your recent discussion about the first book's title and how and why it was changed in the American edition got me thinking that maybe you might find interesting, in case you didn't know, that in the German translation they used yet another word. So they didn't use the German word for philosopher or sorcerer, but they called it something like Harry Potter and the Wise Man's Stone. And interestingly, in Dutch, they did the same. And I did a little research just now and found that the historical philosopher's stone, like the imaginary thing that alchemists were seeking, was called the Wise Man's Stone in German, or is called the Wise Man's Stone in German. So I guess that's the reason why the publisher chose that term instead. And who knows how many other different titles are out there in other languages that we don't know of, right? So yeah, that's all. Thank you so much for everything and bye. Thank you, Karina. I always love hearing about localization efforts like that. Um, It's really interesting. And I think they clearly did a good job of making sure that the title was going to resonate with people. Especially those familiar with the legend, too. If that is what the stone was historically called in that language, then they would go to that for the book title. That makes a lot of sense. I just love that we got our German listeners saying, hey, y'all now to start their voicemails. (laughs) It's spreading, y'all. It's going worldwide. Well, and I'm half German, so I enjoyed hearing Karina's lovely German accent. I'm going to send that voicemail to my grandparents. She could do a podcast, too. She has a podcast voice. Yeah, honestly. Everyone yeah. has a podcast voice. Her Pick David. up a microphone. Go forth and podcast, <laughs> y'all. All right, y'all, let's get into some emails. Our first email comes from Claire, who's getting in touch about Hermione's Christmas gift in the first book. Claire says, peace and love, y'all. But I think Hermione's Christmas gift to Harry definitely should have gotten a five for utility. The last frog in the box that Harry ends up giving to Neville contains Dumbledore's card, which is where Harry recognized Nicholas Flamel's name from. P.S. Listening to MuggleCast brings me so much comfort and happiness every week. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you, Claire. That was sweet. And I think that's well reasoned. That's a good call out. Yeah. Yeah. Are we going to be rating Harry's gifts now every year? <laughs> they just rate everything. <laughs> Only if people enjoyed that segment. And it well, seems clearly like... they did. Yeah. 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 This email is from Deborah about Hedwig delivering Harry's Christmas gift. Speaking of that, while well, listening to episode 578, where you spoke about the gifts Hedwig brings Harry, you mentioned that you thought it was due to ensuring the protection he got from being at the Dursleys. My headcanon is that Hedwig knew it was a day of celebration and would go to Harry's summer home to get him a gift. Since the Dursleys never gave Harry real gifts, I imagine them handing Hedwig literally whatever was in their hand at the time. If they wouldn't give her anything, I think she'd pester them and perhaps peck at their hands until they inevitably hand over something for her to bring back to Harry. They were small, but I think of it as her doing what she could to take care of him. Even if the Dursleys didn't really care about Harry at the time, Hedwig made the effort to make sure Harry had something special. Love the show. Enjoying us all getting to go through the books together again. Thanks, Deborah. Thank you, Deborah. I agree. And it's a good theory about Hedwig, too. Looking out for her number one. Even though he does not reciprocate. <laughs> usually. Usually. This next email comes from Rin. She says, hey, y'all. I have, oh God. <laughs> I have a question about something that has always bothered me. In the Halloween chapter, 
when Harry and Ron save Hermione from the troll, why doesn't Hermione use her own wand to stop the troll? She obviously has proven to be the best of the trio at magic at this point, so why wouldn't she have used the levitating charm herself instead of instructing Ron to do it? Did she not have her wand with her? Is there something that I'm missing? Thanks, Rin. Rin, to this I would say Hermione does not always perform the best under pressure. And as an example to this, I would point uh, to the there's no wood uh, comment that she makes at the end of this book where the devil's snare is creeping in and she's like, right, fire. Uh, So Hermione is an exceptional witch, probably the brightest of her age, but (laughs) it's the pressure of the troll being directly above her about to crush her that renders her inert. And I, too, would be freaking out so much and not necessarily using all of my faculties in a moment like that. Yeah, and I think she's even described as being like plastered against the opposite wall, paralyzed in fear. She's not even making any kind of attempt to escape because she is just so stricken oh. in this moment. And I I think Eric brings up a great example. She does get better about this through the books. Maybe that's something that we can look out for as a growth moment for her. She's definitely stressed. There's no question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, she's in shock. Well, she's stressed too because she was just <laughs> in the bathroom for hours on end crying her eyes out because of she's, what she's happened. She's depleted. She's taken yeah. by surprise. Yeah, and I think this is probably the first real situation she's been in too in the Wizarding World, Eric, to go off of what you were saying too, where she's actually in some kind of danger and she doesn't know how to respond. It's, it's the whole like... Yes, she would be good at casting a spell, but to me, this is more of like that street smarts situation than it is a book smart situation. It's practical application of all the magic that she knows in her head. She just is not familiar enough with actually casting the spell. Exactly. All right. Our next email comes from Matt talking about why Hagrid really went to get Harry. Says, hey, I'm a bit late. Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, y'all, I'm a bit late on this topic, but listening to the mail episode, I suddenly came up with my theory that truly explains why Dumbledore sent Hagrid to pick up Harry. Harry is just a convenient excuse for Hagrid to have a reason to go to Gringotts and pick up the Sorcerer's Stone. Dumbledore only trusts Hagrid to get the stone, but he will be noticed if he goes to Gringotts. But if Hagrid is traveling with a famous previously unseen young wizard, who needs vault access, then he becomes the world's most invisible giant. Harry's celebrity status is the ultimate distraction. Otherwise, it wouldn't matter who got sent to pick up Harry, and so Dumbledore is already finding great ways to use Harry. What do you think? Thanks for everything, y'all. Matt, who's a Hufflepuff? That's a really great theory. Nobody's going to think twice about Hagrid if he's just taken Harry into the Gringotts vault. Yeah. It's kind of a double agent. It's yeah, the hiding in plain sight of it all is really nice. Yeah. Great, great theory. Using that. Harry as a distraction again, Dumbledore using Harry as a pawn in the game of life. This one's okay <laughs> though. This one's okay though. Why? Because he's nice to Harry and tells him No, because well, Harry has to go get his gold anyway. So he has perfect reason to to be there and for Hagrid to take him. I'm the Dumbledore apologist on the panel. A week speaking of muggle mail, I saw an email saying, You guys are too tough on Dumbledore. I'm not. I'm a Dumbledore apologist. I've always <laughs> got Dumbledore's back. I'm just imagining Dumbledore being like, Hey Hagrid, while you're at Gringotts. Could you just pick up this thing for me? (laughs) (laughs) I like your Dumbledore voice. It's very tired. Yeah. Well, I mean, I assume he's tired. He's old. All right. Our next email comes from Sarah regarding uh, why Ron is allowed a rat at Hogwarts. Sarah says, hey, y'all. Why is Ron allowed to take a rat to Hogwarts as his pet? Uh, When on the letter, it says only bring owls, cats, and toads. I think Scabbers is a legacy pet. I think he was grandfathered in. That's what I'm thinking (laughs) as well. The Weasleys. There's a long line of Weasleys. They might get a little leniency. And of course, there's the pedigree of it all. I can see parents putting aside the Weasleys. I can see parents writing to Dumbledore. Hey, Dumbledore, my student or my, my son or daughter who's about to go to Hogwarts is very excited, but they really love this pet. Can... They please bring this pet. And I can see, see Dumbledore going, oh, yeah, that's fine. No worries. Yeah, he can, <laughs> he can come. Because Dumbledore loves the chaos of it all. And, of course, Dumbledore <laughs> is happy to bend <laughs> the rules. So 
He's going to be like, ooh, little rats running around. That sounds fun. Scabbers is a hand-me-down, right? And I, I think if we look at Ron in particular, he gets a lot of hand-me-downs from his older brother, other older brothers, I should say. Um, and I was thinking more about this too, the, this whole idea of the Weasley family being in possession of a rat, it kind of speaks to a you know, financial situation too, that like all they can oh, afford yeah. is a is a disgusting rat. Like the connotation of that to me says mm-hmm. a lot about what she's trying what JK Rowling is trying to say about the Weasley family. Um, just from a financial standpoint, we know they're lovely people, but I think like digging a little bit deeper, there there is something there. The fact that his pet is excuse me, his pet is a rat. Yeah. yeah. Do we ever find out exactly how Percy came to be in possession. I can't imagine that Scabbers, aka Peter Pettigrew, snuck into a pet shop in in like a a vie to be purchased by a family. Like I'm imagining he just kind of turned up in the garden one day and they were like, oh, a rat. Turn up in the garden, show a little bit of intelligence, endear himself to Percy. Yeah. Just doing some quick Googling. I don't know if there's a firm canon answer. Well, because if you think about it, Wormtail always needed to be close to a powerful wizarding family because he was keeping tabs on Voldemort's return. So um, pretty much within a few years, finding the Weasleys makes the most sense. And the Weasleys are probably the most likely of you know, the highly connected pureblood families to have taken a rat in, right? Like, yeah. I can't imagine the Malfoys doing that, for example. And they're at enough of a distance, even though they were in the Order the first time or associated with Dumbledore the first time, they were in enough dif- distance that they wouldn't know about Wormtail's uh, Animagus transformation. And by the way, I have some news for everybody about the Hey Y'all. The other day, I did remove it from the contact form. We've played it out. It's been fun. <laughs> oh. Everybody's welcome to continue adding hay off you once, but it's no longer built into the form. Andrew's getting too annoyed <laughs> as we read every email. <laughs> you know, I know. I just don't want to run the joke into the ground. We, we've had our fun with it. Yeah. Well, unfortunately for you, that's just how I talk. So it's going to keep happening. <laughs> I have no problem with it. We just don't need to make our listeners start their emails right, with it right. uh, for the rest of the time. But actually on that point, this next email is from Amanda. And she says, first of all, oh, my goodness, I loved seeing that. Hey, y'all, but my Canadian heart couldn't just leave it there. So I deleted it. And on that note, hey, MuggleCast, on episode 582, have a broomstick potter. It is discussed that there's not much difference between first and second years playing on the Quidditch teams when it comes to their age. But I think there is an argument for there being flying lessons throughout first year. If this is true, students can get used to flying flying techniques, and Madam Hooch can scope out who would be adept at playing on the school teams the following year. I like that Harry was pushed through to play as it added some really great action in the books. And as discussed, it allowed for Harry to be really good at something in the wizarding world, which was important for him. I'd love to know your thoughts. Yeah, I suppose that's fair. And as a point of comparison, maybe y'all had a similar experience, but I remember being in high school, for example, Oftentimes with school athletics, freshmen were not allowed to participate. Um, You had to like audition or not audition. What's the right word for sports? Try out. Try out. Thank you. I'm thinking I was a drama kid. So audition is the word that comes to (laughs) mind for me. Um, But yeah, they, they would have to try out and it would be towards the end of their first year. And then in their sophomore year, they got to start playing sports. Did anyone else have a similar experience? No, but I know what you're talking about. I think I I saw similar things in my high school. Laura didn't play Quidditch, but she did star in Quidditch, the musical. Fortunately for everyone, I never starred in a musical because I cannot sing. (laughs) So this next email comes from Anonymous the Hufflepuff. I just started listening to MuggleCast yesterday. I'm really enjoying it. And my favorite segment is definitely the trivia. Hey, I had some theories about the latest chapters. On the fact that Malfoy probably knows the unforgivable curses, I think, yes, he does. But slipping forward to the Goblet of Fire, I know that in Mad-Eye's first Defense Against the Dark Arts class, he tells them about the killing curse and says that they could all get their wands out, pointing them at him, 
and he doubted the wand would get as much as a nosebleed. When you guys were talking about the flying class being a plot point for Harry to get on the Quidditch team, I think that's what it is. But if Minerva hadn't seen him flying, Wood would have if Harry had decided to try out for the team later in the year. I think first years could likely try out. They just don't usually have enough experience to be good enough for the team. Thank you for the podcast. Uh, Yeah, it's definitely possible. Yeah. It's also fun to wonder, would Harry have decided to try out for the team later in the year? Like William asks. And knowing that they are looking for a seeker, that the Gryffindor team doesn't have a seeker as of that time, there would be a notice on the billboard in the common room for sure. And they'd be Wood would probably, knowing how intense Oliver Wood can get, would probably be stalking around looking for people, like tossing a ball at people to see if they catch it. Like, (laughs) hey, new Gryffindor, heads up. Okay, do you want to be a seeker? Yeah. And we've spoken about how McGonagall is very competitive when it comes to Quidditch. I would think at some point she'd be like, hey, Wood, you should let uh, Harry run through a tryout because his dad was a Quidditch star. So that's maybe true. he's got it too. It's in his blood. I do like the point that's raised about uh, the unforgivable curses, though I still think Malfoy would have tried something if, in fact, he and Harry ended up uh, dueling that night. Um, if not one of the unforgivable curses, certainly something maybe that he's been working on in his own uh, at home growing up and he knows would inflict a lot of pain uh, on Harry. So I just don't think it was a wise decision for Harry to be like, oh yeah, you know what? I'm going to go out and tussle it up with uh, a pure blood wizard who's grown up knowing probably all sorts of spells. And I actually don't know a whole lot of anything. Bad decision, Harry, bad decision. All right, uh, this next email comes from Josh, who talks about proper sorting. He says, hey, y'all, I was listening to episode 580, Sorting Too Soon, and had a thought. Is it the job of the sorting hat to equally divide the first-year students into four houses? So if a person had Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff traits, would the hat put you in the house that needs students? Otherwise, would there have been years in Hogwarts history where a house got few or no students that year? Just a few thoughts. Love your podcast. And we also had a similar question come from a listener, Tyler. Uh, So we had a couple of questions about how the sorting works in terms of balancing out the houses. I think what Josh is asking is the sorting hat, the Pottermore sorting uh, system, or is it a real life, very variable kind of sorting system? Oh, that was right, right. People were so heated about that in the day, and you can't blame them because anytime you looked at the number of members of each house, they were pretty close to equivalency across the board. And Pottermore was trying to even it out because there was a competition on Pottermore.com. So they had to make, they had to create a level playing ground. But we all take our Hogwarts houses very seriously. So we don't want to be sorted based on what house needs some more people. That was a big problem. Now, in Hogwarts, I would think there has to be a little bit of of weight being applied to even out the houses because there's a point system there as well. Yeah, I want to take it for its word where it really does sort you where they think you'll succeed the most, which means there will be a year where more people are Ravenclaw or more people are by by maybe five or 10 or 20 kids. It just couldn't be this book because she was introducing the houses. So she couldn't just, you know, slight one of the houses in favor of the others. Yeah. But then it raises the question, you know, if the sorting hat is kind of sorting on a scale, depending on where it needs people to go. If you were a first year say this year, and you got sorted into Gryffindor, wouldn't you wonder, hey, if I went to Hogwarts a year earlier or a year later, would I have ended up in another house? That's a good question. I have questions for the sorting hat. You know, (laughs) I've said it before. I'll say it again. Sometimes we sort too soon. (laughs) Yeah, you said that, right? definitely an Andrew line. Yeah. (laughs) I'm taking that as my own. (laughs) All right. Our next email comes from... Big Limpin from South Carolina um, in defense of Petunia Dursley. They say, hey, y'all, 
First, let me start with a thank you. I definitely almost crashed with laughter while driving home listening to the podcast when Laura added, hey, y'all. One of my jobs is at a bar where I check IDs at the door in the South. Hey, y'all was just a common greeting. Now I will have to come up with an excuse for my uncontrollable uncontrollable laughter. I'm so glad that you didn't crash. Um, Laughter aside, I'm ready because I can't sit idly by while Petunia gets so much hate. I get it. We have to love Harry to a degree, especially since his name is in the title. However, I feel as though this leads us to only view Petunia through his lens. But we can't just so easily jump over Petunia's feelings as if she's not human. I feel a lot of pity for her. Here is a woman who once was an only child and, like Dudley, was most likely praised and worshipped by her parents. Yes, a small assumption, but it explains her extremes. She then has a little sister, which means she is no longer the most important, at least in the eyes of her parents. She is then made to feel not only unimportant, but a lesser person because her sister is magical and she is not. We talk about her possibly being envious, but not enough about why she may be envious. Petunia is the elder sibling, so that would make Lily about 11 years old around the time she goes to Hogwarts, which means Petunia was a teenager. So in her most formative years growing into adulthood, this is how she feels she is being treated by her family. Now, do I think her family did this on purpose? Not at all. But I had an ex-girlfriend teach me a phrase a long time ago that I never forgot. You said, but I heard. Now, she takes all those feelings into her adult life, but manages to overcome them. In a Molly Weasley kind of way, she is successful. She finds herself with a husband who loves her and a young son to whom, for whom she would do anything. Then all of a sudden she is tasked with taking care of, of the love child of her sister. I don't think Harry was a love child, but uh, I'll let it go. Um, the woman she attributed most of the blame to for making her feel so small, insecure, and forgotten in the earlier stages of her life. I know she's an adult and should not have been in such a man and should not behave in such a manner as to treat Harry so badly. Also, maybe she should sympathize with his situation, knowing what she had been through herself. However, I just wonder when she looks at Harry, is she an adult or a young teenage girl? staring at the reasons for all of her insecurities and shortcomings in life. Most people can be brave on paper, but it's rather hard to be brave in real life. And she faced her demons every time she looked at Harry. It's easy to blame magic as the point of contention because it's obvious. However, I believe Harry just being in the house is a struggle for her on more than just the front of magic. I hate to say this because I love Albus, but I don't truly think Dumbledore knew what he was asking of Petunia when he left Harry on her doorstep. Thanks for reading. Love you guys. You make my ride to work. Awesome sauce. This is lovely. Yeah. Thanks, Big Blimpin, for that deep dive. I know. Petunia. Deep dive defensive Petunia. Yeah, I think, you know, we're all a product of our upbringing in one way or another. And I think, you know, are we all oldest children on this panel? Are we all the oldest? Oh, my goodness. I think we are. I am. We're the oldest siblings, yeah. right? So to an extent, I think we can all relate to the idea of feeling like going through those teen years and feeling like, oh, my God, my younger sibling can do no wrong. It's like constant praise they get away with more than I got away with when I was younger. Yes, so like that, that's that a one. really normal reaction for people to have. And I think that Big Limpin points out, uh, it's a really astute observation to point out that Petunia never outgrew it because it was such an extreme example. I think most, I think mostly most of us hopefully grow out of this. Um, but it mm-hmm. is very real. I love that you pointed that out. Maybe Dumbledore yeah. thought he was therapizing. He's like, this will be good for Petunia. She never got over it. <laughs> I do think sometimes we are very hard on Petunia, maybe a little too much. Um, while, Laura, you were reading that email, some of our listeners didn't love this email because they point out, and I think rightfully, that 
you know, like Court was saying, she was abusive. There might be complex reasons for that, but there is never yep. an excuse. Yeah. Petunia still did treat Harry terribly and shame on her for that. Yeah. But yeah, she's got a complicated history. <laughs> it's uh, I, I like this email because it challenges us to think in a different way about yeah. Petunia mm-hmm. and almost going back to the voicemail we got earlier from Caitlin about, you know, doing a series through the eyes of Draco Malfoy. Like we're looking at things through Petunia's lens here and and potentially how she was so affected by her own upbringing. And that certainly informed, you know, how she grew up and and how she does treat Harry. And, and I think we talked about it on a previous episode, though, this was an opportunity for her, though, potentially to reintroduce herself to the wizarding world. And she didn't decide to take advantage of it. She chose to go the other route. Um, and treat Harry yeah. like a lot of crap and try and act as if you know the magic wasn't something that was going to manifest itself. And once it does, she tries you know, to continuously deny it and, and have nothing to do with it. She could have taken Harry to Diagon Alley. She could have you know gone to Hogwarts maybe at one point if she was a good guardian, but she's just too frustrated by what happened in the past. That's actually a great point. I really wonder if Petunia, I mean, Petunia could have seen Diagon Alley. She could have seen Gringotts. She could have, as as Harry's shepherd and guardian, really gotten into some of the spaces that she was barred from previously. But I wonder if she turned that down when Lily went, too, and offered to show mm-hmm. her places. So it's just a life lifelong rut that she's been in. In defense of Big Limpin, because I see the comments in the Discord here, um, I would just point out that it's a really good exercise, like even academically, when you're analyzing a text to try and understand the formations and the actions of why characters do the way they do or do things the way they do, um, even if you acknowledge that there's no justification for it. Like, I don't think anyone here, including Ben Glippen, is trying to justify Petunia's actions. It's more trying to dive in deeper into the character and learn about her motivations. And although it is a choice that she's behaving the way she is, looking a little deeper and understanding where that choice comes from, even if there's zero justification for it. And we can still agree she's at the end of the day, a bad person for what she's doing here. Yeah, I agree with must be a Weasley 92 in the discord who says, uh, go to betterhelp.com, Petunia. <laughs> really? For real? <laughs> Slash MuggleCast. <laughs> a little bit of understanding of mental health would have done the world a favor, but that sort of thing wasn't talked about when Petunia was growing up. Yeah. So we've got two more emails here on this show and the next one comes from Snape, Snape with a perm. perm. Okay, I wasn't I thought that was the subject. That's what with, I thought too. Snape with a perm and I'm thinking and I'm sweating going, well, what's their name?" Okay, Snape with a perm says, "Hey y'all, hey y'all." Oh, so there's the there's the arbitrary hey y'all, but then they actually said, "Hey y'all, I saw a video on YouTube that brought up an interesting point." Isn't the Hogwarts Express super inconvenient for students who already live close to Hogwarts? Why would they have to travel down south to London just to go back up north again? I'd love to hear your thoughts and possible explanations for this. Guys, is it ever said that every student has to take the train to get to Hogwarts? We know Harry didn't. Uh, <laughs> year two. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in general. Clearly, there's some options. My first reaction is it's part of the experience. That's part of the Hogwarts experience. You start a new year at Hogwarts, you take the train. That's, I would want that. It's, you know, sometimes when you uh, fly, let's say, cross country, let's say you start in LA and you're going to Florida, sometimes you get on these dumb flights where first you go to Seattle, you have a layover, then you go to Florida. Like that's just, that just happens sometimes. So I don't know. I think if I was a student and, um, you know, kind of in this situation, I'd probably want to be on the train because you're with your friends. You're seeing them all there for the first time. You want to be there for the grand arrival. If you look at the population centers of the UK, it's just that there are so many millions more people down near London and the south than there are in the middle of nowhere, Scotland. It's just the pop by by many orders of magnitude. So the Hogwarts Express uh, exists as a convenient method to get a large amount of students, but not all. 
to Hogwarts. Surely there's students that actually lived in Hogsmeade, which is the only, you know, soul wizarding village in the UK. There are people that live there and can just go down the street to Hogwarts uh, to, to attend or the flu network that's connected to a great somewhere in Hogsmeade. Surely there are students arriving each year this way, but our heroes prefer the London and the Hogwarts yeah. Express route. I got to imagine as you get older, though, you want a quicker way to get to school. Like, I don't know, you, you port key over or do something that, true, you know, doesn't require you to be on a train for hours on end. It was a big deal in high school. Driving, right? Right. When you hit junior year, I guess it was, you were allowed to drive and park at school. Screw the bus. No more <laughs> buses. I get to leave the house later. I get to listen to my own music. I get to stop at McDonald's on my way in. There you go. <laughs> maybe that's it. I think Court agrees with you, Andrew. She says, I most definitely may be asking my mom to drive me to London regardless so I could have that train experience. And then I'm adding to that. Maybe there's some fast food you can only get in London. I would stop at Pret. Speaking of buses, <laughs> though, I, I bet there's also just a safety component to it for parents of knowing like, hey, your kids are getting on a train it's somewhat supervised and it's going to yeah hogwarts versus like just leaving it up to them to figure out how to get there so especially those early years or what if there's like souvenirs for sale on the hogwarts express like the 2022 hogwarts school year shirt exclusively available on the hogwarts express the hogwarts railways sweater yeah yeah <laughs> Or like a collectible coin. Like, I wouldn't want to miss out on that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> one more email to go here. It's a fun one to end on from Levi, who says, Hey, y'all. Did you know in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, when Professor Quirrell says, Troll in the dungeon, troll in the dungeon, Dumbledore replies by sending everyone to their dormitories. However, the Slytherin's dormitory is in the dungeon. So is Dumbledore sending the Slytherins to their doom? Also, I love your podcast. It's so great. I listen to it every day. Thank you for being the best podcast. Well, thank you, Levi. Dun, 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 dun. It's a great dun. question he asked, though. Yeah. It's kind of a security nightmare when you think about it. I'm just imagining one of the professors, probably McGonagall, being like, but Albus, the Slytherin's dormitory is in the dungeon. And Dumbledore just like steeples his fingers and looks at her with a twinkle in his eye. <laughs> He's just like, I know. <laughs> I saw that reproduced Ooh, as like know? a, what is that comic strip? Life is a background Slytherin or something where it's a lot of <laughs> yeah. it is Dumbledore and McGonagall and it's stuff exactly like that. Yeah, I I love it. Is this a connecting the thread to, to Deathly Hallows when they sent, was that just a movieism? I think when they that send was just the Slytherins to the dungeons? Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. I don't think any of the, <laughs> most of the Slytherins fled. I think they left. Um, the, it was true that I think Pansy was like, there's Potter right there. Let's get him. And I think Minerva told them, you guys can just leave. I think she just right. told them to get out. Perpetuating the Solarian hate <laughs> in the movies. I like Laura's interpretation, though, of Albus just kind of like rubbing his hands together and... <laughs> Yeah. A few less Slytherins to grow up. Ooh, I can't wait to see what trouble this causes. We got to reform the Slytherin house reputation, guys. <laughs> Let's just start fresh. But you know what that is, Andrew? <laughs> it is a security nightmare to send your students, um, you know, to face a fully grown mountain troll. Starting to sound like a security nightmare. I security agree, Micah. nightmare. Well, on that appropriate note for this show, that does it for Muggle Mail this week. Next week on the show, we'll discuss chapters 15 and 16 of Sorcerer's Stone. And then the following week, we'll wrap up Sorcerer's Stone with the final chapter and looking back at the book. If you have any feedback about today's Muggle Mail or next week's chapters, you can send an owl to mugglecast.gmail.com or you can use the contact form on mugglecast.com. Now, unfortunately, without the hey y'all pre-written, but you are still welcome to type it if you wish. To send a voice message, record it using the voice memo app on your phone and, and then email us that file. Or you can use our phone number, which is 19203-MUGGLE. That's 1920-368-4453. Micah recently saved our phone number, by the way. So thank you, Micah, because who knows if we'd be able to do another muggle number. It'd be way less fun. Well, thank you, Andrew, because you really stepped up to do the actual saving. I just I just alerted you to the problem. You you solved it. 
<laughs> I hope I solved it. With that text message, which I won't read on the uh, air. It's just not <laughs> You're appropriate. You're both great. Thank you both. <laughs> okay, it's time for Quizage. Last week's question, which real-life wizard rock artist wrote a classic spurned love ballad titled 1991, Charlie Weasley? The correct answer is the wizard rock band Tonks and the Aurors, a.k.a. Steph Anderson. And uh, congrats to all who did know uh, the answer to this. It is a very fantastic song, which includes the line... For my birthday, you got me a dragon skull. And for our anniversary, you just forgot. Uh, <laughs> listen to it now. It's on Spotify. Charlie Weasley doesn't really love me. He only loves his dragons. 1991 Charlie Weasley. Correct answers were submitted by Buff Daddy, Camille, Karen. Uh, Karen, who wrote us our voicemail, actually. A Hufflepuff MuggleCast fan from Germany. Self-identified. Uh, Caddy Hermione, Magizoology 101, Forrest, the 10-year-old, Ravenclaw from Nebraska, Norbort, the dragon, <laughs> oh, Bort, and Salty Slytherin. Congrats to everybody. Next week's Quizage question. When McGonagall gives detentions to the trio and Neville in book one, she says she's never heard of such a thing before. What is the thing to which she is referring? And submit your answer to us on the Quizich form, mugglecast.com slash Quizich, or go to mugglecast.com and choose Quizich from the main nav bar. Sounds good. And make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if you use Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do leave us a review. We really appreciate those. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of MugCast. I'm Andrew. Do you mean MugFest? MugFest, MugCast, whatever you want to call it, we're here for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Happy Bye, Halloween. Don't forget to do 10 reps with your Order of the Phoenix Illustrated Edition to improve the strength of your biceps. I really should do a workout video that's just using that as weight. I'll just go stack them that all now. on top of each other. Just like press from the center. That could be a good like chest workout. Yeah. Oh, you're so right. <laughs>